In the early years of our marriage, Kathy and I invested in an artificial Christmas tree. The size of the tree fit a young pastor's budget. It was a four-footer. And that undersized evergreen tree served its purpose. Each year, it brought Christmas cheer to our living room until the year we moved. Our new house had a cathedral ceiling. And Kathy was quick to point out that our four-foot-tall tree just didn't look right under that cathedral ceiling. For the first two years that we were in the house, my wife dutifully agreed with my common-sense approach that we didn't need another Christmas tree, that our trusty four-footer was paid for. It's all the kids knew anyway. We could save the money, and with the money we saved, we could spend it on more gifts. Kathy understood my logic, but it brought no comfort to her heart. Our tiny tree was the burden that she bore. And when the third year in our house rolled around, I was worried that she wouldn't make it through another Christmas with that squatty, elf-sized Christmas tree. There are some things too severe for even a submissive wife to handle. And so one morning in December, while Kathy was running errands and my older kids were away at school, my youngest son, Mac, and I, we took off in my Toyota Corolla for the Christmas tree farm in Covington. I was determined to do right by my faithful wife and come home with a respectable tree. I would ease her pain. No more fake, pint-sized trees for us. Mac and I were going to get a real tree, a big tree, a gigantic tree, a cathedral-sized Christmas tree for our cathedral-sized ceiling. I'll never forget my son and I walking up and down those rows of Christmas trees. We were looking and looking, and finally we spotted it. It towered over its neighbors. Max saw it a little, and then I saw it a lot. I yelled, timber, as that monster hit the floor of the forest. Mac and I, we both drug it out of the woods. We took it back to the car. We had the attendants wrap the tree in twine, strap it on top of my little Corolla. No kidding, that tree was longer than my car. This isn't the picture of my car But this gives you the idea, you know. This is what we looked like. And I drove home from Covington to Snellville at 20 miles per hour, all the time praying that that huge log on top of my car wouldn't roll off and cause a massive pileup. Well, Mike and I had just pulled into the driveway, and we were unstrapping that tree when Kathy came home. And I'll never forget the look on my wife's face. She was so happy. Her two men had surprised her with her heart's desire. And wow, did that colossal tree fill up our living room. It was probably an inch or two shorter than the Christmas tree they light up on top of Stone Mountain. I'm telling you, it was that big. In fact, I had to cut over a foot of the thing off just to fit it into the house. And its girth, it had a 12-foot diameter on that thing. Every time one of our other three kids walked through the living room that year, and had to shuffle sideways to get around the tree. they just chuckle, and they'd look at me and Mac, and they'd marvel. Wow, that's a really big Christmas tree. Kathy beamed the whole season. She was so proud of that tree. My wife saw the effort that had gone into picking it out and chopping it down 
and hauling it out and tying it on and driving it back and making it fit. That tree was a hands-on expression of love from her husband and her youngest son. Well, this December, I want to talk to you about how to handle Christmas. The best ways to approach this holiday season. I want us all to get a good handle on Christmas. And this morning, I want to start by talking to you about a hands-on Christmas. I want to suggest we all would make Christmas better if we made it a hands-on holiday. Let's read 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. John writes to the church, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The Greeks who read John's letter were an observant people. They studied the natural world and they noticed that it operated according to universal laws. They concluded that there had to be a master plan, a logic or an intelligence responsible for nature's order and its symmetry. They coined a term for the ultimate purpose behind creation. They called it the logos, or in English it gets translated the word. This became the preoccupation of Greek philosophy to identify the logos of life. The Greeks examined the seeable world to determine its unseen purpose. And yet despite their great wisdom, none of the Greek philosophers not the renowned Plato or Socrates or Aristotle. None of them were able to answer life's ultimate question. But the Apostle John had good news. Faith had succeeded where the philosophers had failed. John had discovered the logos. The word had been heard. The unseen had been revealed. John had touched the logos with his own two hands. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, the apostle refers to Jesus as the Word or the Logos of life. He writes in verse 1, our hands have handled the Logos of life. Just as words are outward expressions of our inward thoughts, the invisible God has expressed Himself tangibly in the person of His Son, Jesus. Jesus is the Word. And here John is telling us that there is a God and he's made known to us his nature and his personhood in a way that we can touch and we can hear and we can see and even our hands can handle the reason behind our reality, the logos behind the cosmos. What the Greeks and all human beings have searched for is not a primal force but a person named Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the residence of absolute truth, and of undiluted love, and of eternal life. John is telling us, come to Jesus, and you'll find the reason for your reality. Though it's not John's writings that are usually read at Christmas time, the apostle does much to help us understand the true meaning of Christmas. Yes, John skips over the angel's visit to Joseph and Mary's miraculous conception, and the couple's journey to Bethlehem, and the birth of the baby in the stable, and the announcement to the shepherds, and even the visit of the wise men. 
Yet John does help us understand exactly who it was in the manger. For John's gospel begins in chapter 1, verse 14. John says of Jesus, The Word, that is the Logos, became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. The Greek word translated dwelt, it means to pitch a tent. John is saying the Almighty camped out with us in the person of Jesus. I like how the Peterson's paraphrase renders verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. In short, God moved into the hood. The mastermind, the meaning behind this grand, glorious, mysterious universe we live in. The word, or logos, was born in a Bethlehem stable and laid in a manger. You know, it's mind-boggling to think that the colossal, invisible hand of God The hand that paints sunsets and that hangs stars and that corrals oceans and that parts seas. That hand was shrunk in size and materialized. The hand of Almighty God took the form of five metacarpals, clothed itself in ligaments and tendons, even grew skin and gelatin nails. Have you ever marveled at a baby's tiny hand? The fingers are so small. The palm is so soft. Imagine the hand of God was reduced to an infant's hand. But what's even more astonishing is that God was willing to be touched by human hands. This is what really impressed John. He writes of it in our text. He had heard the word with his very own ears. And he had seen the word with his very own eyes. And he would even touched the word. With his very own hands. John hugged the logos. He embraced the word of life. What philosophers missed with their brilliant intellects. John touched with his grubby, humble, fisherman's hands. The same hands that got hooks out of fish and clean dirty nets. Touched the almighty. At times John would grab Jesus' arm to steer him through the crowd. Like any bunch of guys, I'm sure the disciples and Jesus had playful wrestling matches around the campfire. John patted Jesus on the back and shook his hand and bumped into him in the boat. John even leaned against him at the Last Supper. Jesus was God, the holy, spotless, perfect, unapproachable God. The Old Testament had said that no human being could see God and live. His holiness was too intense. And if no one could look on God and survive the experience, then surely touching Him would be out of the question. How could sinful hands touch a sinless God? And yet when God became a human being, a new possibility occurred. God Himself grew human hands and became accessible and vulnerable to other human hands. Now folks with feeble hands and greedy hands and sticky hands and desperate hands and even violent hands and pushy hands reached out and grabbed Jesus. In the very beginning, it was just Jesus' earthly father and mother, Joseph and Mary, who touched him. Joseph had carpenter's hands. They were rough and they were gritty. They had been bruised by hammers and calloused by hard work. But there was no midwife at the birth of Jesus. And so the coarse hands of Joseph were needed to pick up the newborn baby and lay him in his mother's lap. 
And who would think that Mary's hands would be allowed to touch the newborn king? These hands belonged to a teenage girl. They were used to combing hair and texting friends and twirling curls and playing with rubber bands. And yet those hands were chosen to lay God in the manger, to change his diaper, to cuddle him and nurse him. And remember Simeon's hands. He was the old man in the temple who saw Jesus when Joseph and Mary brought him up to Jerusalem to be circumcised. Old Simeon's hands, they were gnarled and they were withered with age, perhaps even crippled by arthritis. They might even have trembled like a Parkinson's patient. And yet Luke 2 tells us, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God. You know, it's interesting to me that Joseph never tried to stop Simeon from taking the baby in his hands. Could have been that the man moved so fast that Joseph didn't have time to say anything. Maybe Mary shuddered when his old hands held her baby. I had an aunt who suffered from multiple physical handicaps. and She spent her later years in a nursing home. She was the only child of five in my father's family who was actually born in the hospital. And the family always thought her injuries were caused by a nurse who dropped her on the floor. It's just kind of an old family fable. How vulnerable, though, was this baby called Jesus in Simeon's weak and fragile hands? His old hands could have given way and dropped the Savior on a slab. Jesus narrowly missed trouble at the hands of the evil King Herod. Herod ruled Judea with an iron fist. The earthly king was determined to crush any rival to his throne, even if that threat came from an infant. His jealousy led to the slaughter of the Bethlehem Bethlehem's babies. Herod died with innocent blood on his hands. In the years that followed, you wonder how many hands and what kind of hands touched Jesus. His ministry began when the sturdy hands of another John latched onto his shoulder and baptized him in the Jordan River. Leprous hands touched Jesus. Repentant hands wiped his feet with tears. Frantic hands, afraid of the southern storm, woke him up in the boat. The drowning hands of one fearful disciple named Peter grabbed his hand and was pulled back into the boat. Worshipful hands poured fragrant oil on his head. You remember a withered hand that seconds earlier had been crippled and paralyzed amazingly reached out with healing faith and touched Jesus with deep gratitude. The desperate hand of a woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 15 years reached out with faith and touched the hem of his garment and was healed. Mark chapter 3 verse 10 says of the Lord Jesus that he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. Sick, desperate, Human hands reached out and touched Jesus. Mark 6 verse 56 describes a familiar scene. Whenever Jesus entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. When God became a man, it was a hands-on celebration from the very beginning. 
And I believe a relationship with Jesus remains a hands-on experience even today. You know, children are tactile learners. They learn by touching and handling and feeling objects. Visit our nursery on Sunday morning and you'll see babies grabbing for the toys with their fingers and squeezing them and sticking them in their mouths and sucking on them. This is how they learn, by touch. As adults, we become more cognitive in our approach. We begin to think and decipher abstract thoughts. But there are still issues in our lives that need to be handled and personally touched in order to comprehend. Think of lessons taught by suffering. You have to go through it, don't you, in order to learn it. Think of the responsibilities of parenthood. You can be told to you're blue in the face, but you got to go through it. Think of the cost of freedom. Think of the joy of marital love. There are many experiences in life that a person has to handle and touch to appreciate. And knowing God is one of those experiences. See, here is God's plan for His kids. We don't just admire the Word of life or believe in Him or even worship Him. We reach out spiritually and we touch Him. As John puts it, Jesus, the Word, our hands have handled. Jesus is a hands-on God. He is still touched with fingers of faith. And this is one of the lessons of Christmas. I believe this is the truth that should make Christmas, the festival that commemorates Jesus' entry into this world, a hands-on celebration. To really experience the meaning of Christmas, you have to do more than just talk about it or study it, or even believe in it, you have to touch. Your hands have to handle Christmas. Christmas is about God undertaking a bold and a daring deed. He left the confines and comforts of His heavenly throne for this outback called earth. He showed up on mean streets. He was touched by mean hands. And you don't celebrate a move that gallant with actions that are timid and tame. A true Christmas celebration requires more than tossing a strand of tinsel over a tree limb or offering up a toast with a cup of eggnog. you got to get hands on to do Christmas justice. Christmas is about touching. It's about us touching God, and it's about us touching others. And it's about God touching us. Reminds me of the family that was late one year for setting up their front yard nativity scene. Their toddler got confused with his terminology. The word nativity was not in his vocabulary, not yet. And so he asked, Mom, when are we going to set up the activity scene? But I like that. Nativity and activity should go hand in hand. Christmas should be a hands-on celebration. Every Christmas season needs to be an activity scene. Christmas is an opportunity to touch people. Christmas is about taking your kid into the woods and chopping down a giant tree that fills up a cathedral ceiling and then filling your child's mind with memories and filling your heart, your wife's heart with an expression of your love. Christmas is about getting hands-on. This Christmas, I want you to have a hands-on Christmas. Do something unusual. Do something special. Make a memory with your kids or your grandkids or your nieces or nephews. 
Teach them the real meaning of Christmas. Impress on a teenager a real-life lesson. Join in with a friend or friends to do something that will reflect to our world the hope that's come. When my kids were younger, every Christmas morning we had a birthday party for Jesus. That's right. Kathy would bake a birthday cake. And before we opened the first presents, we all sang happy birthday to Jesus. That cake even had candles. It was always a big debate as to how many candles Jesus needed on his birthday cake. We would blow out the candles and then we would eat a slice of cake. Hey, nothing's better for you than a slice of birthday cake at 6 o'clock in the morning on Christmas morning. Our custom, though, made a great impression on our kids. I heard of another family that kept a similar custom with their little girl. One Christmas afternoon, the five-year-old was asked if she'd gotten all that she wanted for Christmas that year. She replied, no, but it's not my birthday. And that's the message we want to impress on our kids, isn't it? Perhaps if you drift through the Christmas season without being deliberate with your kids and your family, hey, don't be surprised if their attitudes end up as secular and superficial as the world around them. You've got to be deliberate. This is why we need to take a hands-on approach to Christmas. We have to go on the offensive and look for ways to impact our kids with lessons that will stick in their minds. George Armstrong Custer was a famous Indian fighter. His wife, Elizabeth Custer, kept a diary. In it, she wrote of her Christmas celebrations in the Wild West. She said, Sometimes I think our Christmas on the frontier was a greater event to us than to anyone in the States. We all had to do so much to make it a success. One universal custom was to spend all the time we could together. All day long there was talking, laughing, or humming bars of Christmas carols. We played childhood games that made the states and our homes seem a little nearer. With a determination to be merry, notwithstanding the isolated life and utterly dreary surroundings, the holidays were made something to look forward to the whole year round. Here's what strikes me most from her comments. We all had to do so much to make it a success. And could it be the reason our Christmas celebrations are so hollow and unfulfilling is that everything gets done for us? We buy a tree that's already chopped down, even decorated. Or we pull it out of a box or we cater a dinner that's been pre-cooked. Or we buy bows that have already been tied. To have a hands-on Christmas, it requires some extra time and some added effort. Here's my point. To get more out of Christmas, you've got to put more into Christmas. There's another of Mrs. Custer's comments that strikes me as important. She recalls, A determination to be merry, notwithstanding the isolated life and utterly dreary surroundings. In other words, she didn't let her surroundings or circumstances spoil her Christmas. We forget that the first Christmas was also celebrated in the midst of less than desirable circumstances. Joseph and Mary were being taxed by Rome, were forced to travel to Bethlehem. They just completed an exhausting trip. They couldn't find a room in the inn. They too were utterly dreary circumstances. See, Christmas is about making the best of a grim and gloomy situation. 
God entered, God entered a dark and hopeless world to shine His marvelous light. And a hands-on approach to Christmas will be willing to do the same. I believe the Christmas season is a time for lighting candles, not complaining about the darkness. And of course, Elizabeth Custer made one other comment that I didn't mention. She always regretted giving her husband, George, his last Christmas present, an arrow shirt. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll get it later. An arrow shirt. This Christmas, why don't you get off the couch and get away from the TV? You've already seen all those Hallmark movies anyway. And do something. Have a hands-on Christmas. Don't worry about your less-than-perfect circumstances or your undesirable situation. Go ahead and spread some cheer. Be an influence for good. String some lights. Make a memory with the children. Do a kind deed for a neighbor. Send a gift to a soldier or to a prisoner. Introduce the immigrant family down the street to a Christmas custom. Write a letter to a missionary. Visit a nursing home. Hey, help out a single mom. Here's my point this year. Why don't you find a way to impact somebody with the love of Jesus? Kathy recalls making gingerbread houses with our kids. A few days pre-Christmas, she'd turn the kitchen table into a gingerbread house construction site. She would take sheets of graham crackers and icing and leftover Halloween candy and let the kids loose to sculpt and eat and apply their creative juices to building a house. It made for a hands-on Christmas. I recall my son Nick and I dangling off the roof of my house stringing Christmas lights and stapling them to the eaves. I wonder, what in the world am I doing up here? It too, though, made for a hands-on holiday. And check this out. Go back. Check this out. The tradition continues. My daughter-in-law sent me this picture this morning after listening to the sermon. She showed me photos of my son Nick making the same hands-on memory with his son Colt. They're both on top of the house, stapling lights to the eaves. And I'm sure she was out in the driveway screaming at him to get off the house just like my wife was with me. But you see, good memories stick. They, they get passed down. Once a little guy, he forgot his one, one and only line in the Christmas play. He was supposed to quote Jesus, I am the light of the world. But his mind went blank at the, at the big moment. He was paralyzed in front of the crowd. His mom was on the front row, though, and she was trying to help. She kept mouthing the line, I am the light of the world. Finally, he, the little boy, he caught on to what his mom was saying, and he belted out. He said, my mom is the light of the world. And mom and dad, never forget, to your kids, you are the light of the world. And I hope this Christmas, you'll take a hands-on approach to the holiday and make Christmas spiritually significant to you and your family. One of the ways that the Adams family always tries to make Christmas a hands-on experience for our kids is that we keep a specific Christmas morning tradition. Before we open the first present, we reenacted the Christmas story 
in the living room of our, of our house, in the floor. We had a set of figurines, ceramic figurines, that were given to us by Kathy's mom. One of the kids would read from Luke and Matthew, while the others would act out the narrative with the ceramic figurines in the floor of the living room. And they had angels and Mary and Joseph and shepherds and even wise men. Of course, the highlight was always Jesus' birth. And I don't know how it started, but one year the kids realized that the ceramic Mary was hollow. And so the ceramic baby Jesus would fit inside the ceramic Mary. And that year when it came time for Jesus to be born, one of my sons held up the Mary figurine, gave it a little shake, and out plopped baby Jesus. And for years afterwards, every Christmas, out plopped Jesus. Now I'm sure some are sitting here shuddering. A ceramic baby Jesus falling out of a ceramic Mary. Pastor Sandy, you're being a little sacrilegious, aren't you? Our pastor's being a little irreverent. And I admit that's how it sounds. But you try reenacting the Christmas story with three rowdy teenage boys. You'll be a little bit more understanding. I'm just glad they wanted to participate, even if it happened a little differently than I thought it should. In fact, when I ponder what happened that first Christmas, the whole story is different than what I would expect. God gets born in a barn? Are you kidding me? He chooses peasants for parents? Bleeding goats and mooing cows welcome the king? No doctor, no midwife on duty, no fanfare, no supernatural protection. I mean, the most important baby ever born is laid in a dirty, unsanitary feed trough. And then shepherds of all people are chosen as messengers. I mean, none of these scenarios would be the script I would have submitted to the publisher. But this is what happens when God lets human hands touch him. Situations will get marred and muddied and end up less than desirable. Messy fingerprints will smudge what should have been pristine portraits. On that first Christmas, God took a risk. God put himself in human hands. He became vulnerable and touchable and very, very hands-on. God became accessible to human hands and their very human intentions, both good and evil. Apparently, this is how God likes spending his Christmases. Here's what you have to beware of with a hands-on Christmas. Human hands are grubby and selfish and dirty. And when humans get their hands on Christmas, situations don't always turn out how you planned. I've tried to help people at Christmas time that in the end didn't really want my help. I've been heckled while Christmas caroling. Can you believe it? I've run into a Scrooge or two while trying to do a good deed. I've even tried to show love to a relative who wasn't ready to receive it. In Mark chapter 9 verse 31, the same Jesus who was touched by so many loving hands predicted... The Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. Again, Jesus is touched 
by human hands. But this time those hands want to harm him. They even want to kill him. Evidently a hands-on Christmas can be dangerous. You know, when Mac and I went to chop down that giant-sized Christmas tree for Kathy, an incident occurred when I strapped that tree on top of the car. It really was a huge tree, and I was trying to manhandle it myself. And a four-year-old wasn't much help. And when I slung that tree on top of the car, the tip of the tree swung, and it cut Mac right across the face, just flicked him right across the face, gave him a big scar that lasted all Christmas season. My son had a cut that went from his brow to his chin. Every picture we took that Christmas shows little Mac with a scarlet thread running down his face. That's kind of faded and old, and so it's hard to see it, but it's there. I was just a father trying to show love to his bride. And in the midst of my actions, I inflicted on my own son a serious wound. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that exactly what happened the first Christmas as well? God loves us. And he allowed evil men, evil hands to grab his son and inflict a mortal wound. Even while trying to save us. A whip flicked across Jesus' back. Razor sharp edges opened his skin. Nails and thorns were driven into his hands and into his brow. Jesus took the sin that was done by our rebellious hands and he paid its penalty by nails that were driven into his own hands. And after bearing our sin on the cross, the hand of God had one more miracle to work. God raised his buried son from the dead, never to die again. It was a hands-on Christmas. And recall, when the disciple named Thomas, you recall, when he doubted that Jesus had risen, the Lord appeared to him. This is so cool. And once again, God invited human hands to touch him. And it was John, no less, the same John who called Jesus the word of life our hands have handled, that records in John chapter 20, Jesus inviting Thomas to reach your finger here, he said. And look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. The living Lord invited a doubting disciple to literally reach out and touch him. Again, the hands-on continues. And Jesus offers the same invitation to you and me today. If you doubt that Jesus loves you, If you doubt that he can do for you what he says he can. If you doubt he wants to because of the evil you've done. Then today, rise up in faith and reach out with all your heart. And touch the God who has made himself touchable. Make this Christmas a hands-on Christmas in your heart. With one hand, reach out to Jesus. And with the other hand, make an impression on somebody that he loves. But whatever you do, don't sit back and watch this season pass by. Roll up your shirt sleeves. Get active in some way. Get hands-on this year. If you want this Christmas to be the best Christmas you and your family have ever had, hands down, then make it a hands-on Christmas.